Good morning. When I was looking at the commentaries on, on this uh, text in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, uh, I looked at the commentary by Kent Hughes, and I always appreciate uh, his work, uh, partly because he's a preacher, and it's, uh, it's pretty practical stuff, but it's also uh, well done. He was describing uh, one Sunday when he was not feeling particularly secure about his message. All of us go through that, by the way. And and uh, he was there uh, going over his notes and, and praying, and one of the deacons or one of the men in the church came rushing in, and he says, I just wanted you to know that uh, Dr. Alan Redpath and Dr. Stephen Olford are sitting in the audience this morning. And, and he said, that really... Did it, but his point was that when you know you have people like that sitting in your audience, it quickens your pulse and it makes you more more conscious of of doing your job well. I haven't had a lot of that experience. I've spoken two or three times at the seminary, but it is a very interesting experience to speak at the seminary and they have that arranged where the cloud of witnesses, so to speak, is behind you and so you can't see their faces or they're, you know, going like, oh no, did I let him out of here? But, but it is an interesting feeling to have folks like that. By the way, sometimes you have an audience and you don't know it. That can be pretty dangerous stuff. If you don't believe me, ask the politicians who forgot to turn off their microphones when they made comments that they thought were not being made public. Well, we have an audience in our text, as you know, and, uh, and that is the way our author starts out. But I want you to look at the, at the context because we, I believe chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is really the conclusion of chapter 11. And so the, the, the chapter divisions may not serve us particularly well. Uh, the the uh, connective word that is used and rendered therefore is used only one other time in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And it's very clear that what he is saying in these verses, 12, 1 through 3, is, is a conclusion to what he has been saying in chapter 11. And in particular, I think, in relationship to verses 39 and 40, of chapter 11. So we have come out of the hall of faith, as it were, and we've looked at some of the, the heroes of the faith. And I noticed to myself, as I was reading through the text, it is a great cloud of witnesses. It is not a cloud of great witnesses. There's a difference, is there not? It's, it's, it's a good, it's a goodly sized group. But we know that some of these folks are not exactly what we would say are uh, the finest when we look at those guys who come out of the book of Judges, for example. But these are the people uh, that we have been looking at. And I think what the author is saying to us is, I want you to take note of these people. I want you to recognize they're with you. But in, in my way of viewing it, it's as though they are sort of behind us and beside us, but it's Christ who is before us. That's where our focus is. And so ultimately what he's saying is, I don't want you to fix your eyes on them. I want you to fix your eyes on him. Know they're there, but recognize when we run this race, it's Jesus that this is about and not about fallible men. 
So let's just look at the structure of our text for a second. Uh, by the way, I, w- I would say when I look at this text, you know, you say to yourself, it doesn't seem like a very long text. This text is like a Volkswagen Beetle on a college campus. You know, the door opens and one steps out or falls out or crawls out. And then another, what have they got record, 18, 19, that's stuffed inside of one of those. This text has more material that is substantial material packed in that it is, it is an incredibly dense text. But I think that you have to look at this text like Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 18 through 20. I don't always want to make a distinction uh, grammatically, but, but in Matthew chapter 28, it's clear that there is one imperative. Now, this gets a little technical. There's one imperative, that's to make disciples. All of the other things that are said are activities and things that need to happen, teaching and baptizing and so on. Those are part of it, but the command is to make disciples. In our text, there are two major commands, and I'm not sure that many translations really focus on those two commands. The first is a subjunctive. It's an exhortation, let us run, and then qualified, with endurance. Let us run. That is what we are to do. Uh, as believers. And the second command is in verse 3, think of him who endured. So those are the commands. The other things that we are given in the text are things that are preparatory or are, are a part of that process of running, but those, I believe, are the main commands. So the first command, let us run with endurance. And then in, in these elements, by the way, sorry in your notes, I think I got it back in the PowerPoint. Putting off weight and sin and, and then looking to Jesus in verse 2. And then the second command in verse 3, uh, thinking of him who endured, he who endured such hostility so that we would not grow weary and quit. So let's focus for a moment on chapter 12, verse 1. This word, therefore, is a very interesting word. Uh, there, there is a very common word that would be used as a therefore. This one actually is, is a triple uh, particle. And so if, if you were going to say this kind of in English, it would go like this. Now, therefore, then... You got three different connective words smushed together into one now, one term, and it's only used that way, found elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8. But it is a very clear indication that there is a strong connection between chapter 11 and what we are reading in these first verses in, in uh, chapter 12. And, and then uh, another thing that is, is interesting is the word also it is uh, excluded in the particular translation that I am using. And it is used in, in, in and sort of fit in in different ways. But it says literally, we also. And so it's making a connection between them, those witnesses, and us. We somehow have an identification with them. We have a partnership with them. And, and there's this whole collective element 
that, that is, is very, very important. Now, I'm going to cheat on my notes and go down to 1 Corinthians 9. When you look at the imagery of running a race, and you find that in numerous places in the Scripture, but in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 9, verses 24 through 27, when Paul speaks of running that race, it's a very individualistic uh, thing that he's doing. In other words, he's talking about how he runs and what he does, but there's not this sense of looking, as it were, around the stadium for all of these witnesses who are watching and, and, and uh, the other collective elements. But notice uh, as sort of the corporate element that you see in this. Let us, he says, and, and, the, and, and the, the course that is set before us, as well as the, as the course that was set before our Lord Jesus, but it's we as a collection of believers. And then he speaks, of course, as uh, of the great cloud of witnesses. I say that because Hebrews makes a lot of the corporate dimensions of our faith. We are saved into a people of God. We are saved into the church. When the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ, it baptizes us and joins us with his church. We are not solo saints, but we are rather a part of a corporate body uh, who are involved together. So we are involved with this great company of witnesses uh, who are participants in, in, in this element. We are not standing in a graveyard. Now, I have actually, uh, I saw a movie with Malcolm Mugridge where he is standing in, in the graveyard where his ancestors are buried. And he says, you know, my ancestors are all here and soon I'll be here. We are not standing in a graveyard. When we're in Hebrews chapter 11 and we're in Hebrews chapter 12, these people are active participants. Remember, he said to us in chapter uh, 11, Abel still speaks. He doesn't say Abel's dead and gone. And he is still speaking. So in other words, you have this group of witnesses who are surrounding us and they're not dead and buried. They are people whose hope was after the grave and there is a sense in which they are involved in this process uh, with us. Incidentally, uh, when you look at that word, it is the word, witness is the word from which we get martyr. And, and the scholars sometimes will say, well, the, the sense of dying for your faith isn't really there in the early, in, in these early days when this word is used. And, and my, I guess what I would say to that is, it, maybe we're looking at them immediately as witnesses. But as time goes on, and as the circumstances come about, about which this author is, is forewarning his readers, the word martyr is going to take on that meaning. And they're going to understand, these are not just people who are watching. These are people watching who died for their faith. So there's very much a, a, a collective element to that. And uh, I want to come back to that a little bit later in the message. We are, we're told to uh, run the race with endurance. So we are to look at, 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 at our Christian life as though it is a race. You know there are other places, Ephesians chapter 6, where we would look at the Christian life as a warfare, as a battle. But here the imagery is that of running the race and of what that requires of the runner, what it requires of us. 
And here he's saying that we are to run with endurance. So it's not a sprint. It is a race in which uh, we are in a marathon and, and we are... We, we must persist and persevere in order to finish the race. It is not some quick burst. And remember again, these people and we are those who recognize that the rewards don't come in this life. They come after death. And they are not earthly, they are heavenly. So we have to live out our pilgrimage in this life with endurance waiting for the next. Don't expect a quick victory. Now, I put this in, and I almost wondered if I should wait for later, but I'm, I'm going to suggest this to you. I know it's a marathon race, but there is a sense as I read this text that I see it as a relay race. And, and, and I'll tell you why it helps me uh, identify with what the author is saying. In a relay race, it isn't just one person who wins or loses. It is a whole team, right? You've got... Each person in that relay race, they have to hand off the baton right. If somebody drops it, that's a big problem. And if somebody muffs it, that's a big problem. But when you run a relay race, then there are people who have played their part out before you. But they are very interested in what you are doing at the moment. That's the way I sense this this great host of witnesses. These are people who carried the baton, so to speak, in their day and time, and they have passed that baton on. But remember, chapter 11, verses 39 and 40 says that these people uh, recognized that they were half, that they would not enter into their reward before their death, but they had to wait until we all enter it together. So in other words, the race is not finished. They've run their part of the lap. They've handed it off to us. And now all these witnesses are watching us because our participation is in one sense theirs as well. So that all of history is involved in this race, I think, that our author is trying to say. Now, he says to us that we, in order to run this race, we need to set aside every hindrance. Now, there's, there's some very interesting things that take place in these two elements, hindrances and besetting sin. Notice that when he says every hindrance, the sense is that there's a bunch of them, wouldn't you say? And, and when you think about a runner, and by the way, in those days, they probably would have been X-rated races, but they, they ran almost naked. Sometimes they ran barefoot, but, but they got down to the basics. And so what they left, so to speak, in the dressing room was a whole lot of stuff. And they didn't have their car keys and, you know, their, their, their palm devices. They, they weren't, that stuff is left behind. So the sense I get is there are many things that are not essential to winning a race and things that may need to be shed. I'm going to come back to that. But when you, when you look at the besetting sin, it is now as though he is looking at one thing. Why does he make this singular as opposed to plural? Now, I have to tell you, folks, when I think about my life, there's a whole lot. Of, you know, you could talk about a bunch of sins. And, and there's a lot of them that need to be dealt with. But it seems to me that what he's saying is that there are certain sins that may characterize us in our life. Now, think about this in the Old Testament. Abraham, 
it appears to me that one of Abraham's root sins, as it were, fundamental sins, was fear. And that fear is what drove him to lie, or more accurately, drove him to ask his wife to lie about who she was. Through the whole course of his life, he says in, in Genesis chapter 20. So there is that. With Jacob, there is the element of deceit and grasping. He always wants to get ahead at other people's expense. And you see that characterizing pretty much his whole life. When you look at Samson, I don't think we have to go into great detail, would you not say, there is one sin that looms rather large in his life. And so my sense is that the author is saying, when we look at our lives as individuals, and when others look at us, they probably could say, when it comes to winning the race, it looks to me like this is what he's going to have to deal with more than anything else. Now, I may be mistaken about that, but but somehow when he talks about it in these terms, it, it appears to me that he's focusing, he's narrowing down to some really root issues uh, that are there and that are keeping us from, from doing the race well and that we ought to know what those are. I don't believe that these are hidden unbeknown to us, but rather that these are things that we know is a real issue in our life, and that's going to have to be dealt with. The other thing that's interesting about this is when he talks about these things and he talks about setting aside these things, the tense that he uses uh, versus the, the, the tense that he's using, the present tense where he's talking about running the race, running the race is something that we got to keep doing a long time because that's what it's about, endurance. The feel you get is that setting aside losing weight, if I may, and, and by the way, I'm so happy for this pulpit to be in front of me right now when I'm talking about this, but losing weight and, and setting aside sin, that those are things that need to happen before the race. Listen, folks, you don't get in the middle of the race and say, wow, I need to lose some weight. <laughs> it's too late. And, and, you know, whatever you do, when you enter that race, those things need to be done in a preparatory way. And, in fact, preparation is just a huge part of winning any race, is it not? I've not done a lot of, in fact, I haven't done, I avoided all racing if I could on the, on the physical running side. But uh, it, it seems to me that when I've done other things, let's just take painting a car. You know, actually, the, 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 the actual spraying of the car is, is rather a quick thing. I'm not saying I do well at it, folks, but it, it comes rather quickly. But there's hours of filling in dents and, and sanding out scratches and whatever. And if you do that badly and you put a mirror coat on that, it's just like amplifying all those awful things that you didn't do. Preparation is 90%. By the way, that's also true for preaching. It all goes in at the front end, and how it comes out in the end has a lot to say with what's happened in the preparation. Now, one of the things that I, I guess I want to stop and, and talk about for a second is when you're looking at hindrances, weights, I think there are different weights for different people. Now, now try this on for size. I know this is the imagery of running a race, and so basically anything that weighs you down slows you down. By the way, if you notice people jogging and they'll have those weights, they, they, some of them will have barbell, d dumbbells, whatever they are, and they'll run along with them and they have weights around their, their, their ankles. It's because they want to use energy and they're probably trying to lose something in the process too. But 
If they were going to run a marathon, trust me, they would leave those behind. But when you think about a parachute, if you were a mountain climber, a parachute would really be a hindrance, would it not? If you were a skydiver, somehow you'd have a whole different outlook on the weight of of that parachute. It's essential to what you do. Uh, When you think about uh, uh, a a deep-sea diver, you know, they have to have weights to get them down. So weight is actually essential what they do. Uh, I hate to say this, but a sumo wrestler, you know, they're not, they're not the guys that look like the people who run the marathons. They want weight. Now, I don't know why, but they want a lot of it. So you have to say that some things, for, for some believers, Certain things may be a weight. For example, I'm going to take a game that I am horrible at. Anybody who's ever asked me to play golf has never asked me again. That tells you how good I am. And, and uh, playing golf is, is one of those things that could be uh, an excuse for us not to be doing things we should be doing. It is possible that playing golf could be a weight. But it is also possible that playing golf will be the occasion where somebody takes a next-door neighbor or goes with friends or joins up with a group of other guys. And it may be that that's the context where the gospel is proclaimed. And I'm saying, if that's you, have at it. Play golf to your heart's content. Or or soccer. Uh, And generally, this is going to be our kids' soccer. You know, soccer could be something that keeps you from what you need to be doing for our Lord Jesus Christ. It could be, and I think in a number of cases it is. It may also be the occasion where your light shines, where other people, there are people who will hear the gospel and watch your life who would have never gotten any other way. So all I'm trying to say is, when we look at our lives, what we have to say is, what are the things in my life, given the mission that God has given me to do, what are the things in my life which actually hinder me from doing that mission? And what are the things that God would want me to do to enhance that mission? Those may be weights for other people in other circumstances. So it looks to me like when we're looking at this, uh, setting aside every weight, every hindrance, every one of us as individuals has to look long and hard, and, and, and we have to say there's a lot of stuff probably that just gets in our way. But there's also those things that are essential And, uh, by the way, the besetting sins. I wanted to suggest uh, some of the sources of besetting sins. One would be circumstances. Do you find that under certain circumstances, let's just say it's stress, there are certain kinds of sins that just pop up, right? They're they're really under the surface, just a half inch, but, boy, when the circumstance comes, whoof, there they are. Besetting sin, I would suspect. Disposition. We all have different temperaments and makeups, and my guess is that there are certain sins that may be uh, more closely akin to certain kinds of makeup that we have. I don't mean the kind you put on, I mean the kind you are. There may be certain things that are related to your disposition that you just need to come to terms with and say, I can call it, I can excuse it, I can do all this, but the bottom line is, it's a sin which keeps me from doing God's work well. That's a besetting sin. Spiritual gifts. This is interesting. 
But spiritual gifts are our strengths. But when you look at Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, and I'm really focusing on verse 8, where he's saying, uh, if, if this is your gift, uh, teaching or exhortation, then you are to do that. But what does he say? When you give, you are to give with simplicity. That may mean give with generosity. The word has kind of a two-fold meaning. It may mean you need to be generous. Some of us, we give, but we're cheap. Uh, and, and, and that's not the way we ought to give. The other is that we may give with ulterior motives. So we may give in such a way that we give the trumpet blast and everybody gets to see and tell us how great we are. Jesus talks about that. And he says, you have your reward. When he says, when you, when you show mercy, then you are to do that in a way that is not begrudging, that is joyful. See, so your spiritual gift and my spiritual gift have within them certain uh, dangers. When a man is a king, Deuteronomy chapter 17, and you can look at the history of Israel, being a king brings the danger of power and its abuse, as with David. It has the danger of, of becoming uh, arrogant, and you see that in the, in the, uh, in the, the way in which the scriptures t- talk about the prince of Tyre and liken, liken him to Satan. When you have the gift of teaching and you stand in front of a group of people, there's a way in which that gets to your ego, and that can be a horrible thing. That, that, that can happen to somebody who's in a public spot. When you look at Acts chapter 20, it talks about those men who are leaders in the church who, who now begin to teach different things, errant things, in order that they might gain a following for themselves. So I'm saying to you, God has given every one of us wonderful gifts. But one of the areas you need to look for besetting sins is what are the ways in which Satan would want me to prostitute this strength. And so it becomes really a weakness. That, I think, we need to keep in mind. By the way, one more. Culture. And you might put race beside that. I'm not quite sure. But remember in Titus chapter 1, where Paul says, Cretans are all liars. Therefore, strongly rebuke them. Wow. There are certain cultures where lying is much more acceptable than others. And, and I was thinking about this now with our, with our friend and brother in the, in the Middle East, where he talks about an honor-based culture. When you think about certain cultures and the things that we read in, in, in daily that are taking place, and we shake our heads and we say, what is wrong with them? Their culture has besetting sin. And, and we have to ask ourselves within that, within our culture, what are the things in our culture that may get to us that may be the sin that keeps us from moving ahead for our Lord Jesus? Verse two. He says, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. I want you to notice that he does not use the term Christ here. He uses the term Jesus. Why do you think that is? It's because he is speaking about our Lord as the one who is the author and the finisher, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And he is talking about what Jesus has done in his incarnation, that is, what he has done in his humanity. Where and how is Jesus the best example for us? Well, it would seem to me that it's easier for us to see his example 
when we look at those things that are true of our Lord Jesus in his earthly life, that he's manifested in his humanity and that ought to be manifested in our humanity as well. So I think that his his refusal or, or, or his failure, so I say purposeful failure to use the word Christ, but using the word Jesus is significant. Um, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Have you ever watched anybody in a race where they get too preoccupied with what's going on behind them? It doesn't go well. And what he's saying is every race is set out and has a course. And what you want to be looking at is where the goal is. You might say from Hebrews chapter 11, you want to be looking where the reward is. <laughs> where the goal is is where the reward is. And ultimately, that's Jesus. So here he's saying to us, we must keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. By the way, this is a fascinating, this is one of those come out of the Volkswagen deals. When you look at this word, it is a very interesting word, and it has the sense of looking away from something in order to fix your attention on something else. Looking away from this in order to focus on this. I think that's very appropriate here. There are lots of things on which our eyes could be focused, which would be counterproductive to us and our walk and race of faith. And then it says, he is the pioneer and the perfecter of the faith. There's a lot of discussion about these words. The word pioneer can be used in the sense of a champion who, who leads in battle, uh, certainly of a leader or of a founder or of a ruler. So there are a lot of options. But it seems to me when you take those two and, and you see, the, in a sense, the old translation, author and finisher, it means he started it, he ends it. Uh, thinking about creation, look, look at what you got. Isn't, isn't the Bible saying God is the author and the, and the perfecter of creation? Look at Genesis 1, look at Revelation. At the end, what do you see? God started it, God's going to perfect it, he's going to complete it, it's all his. Now he's talking about it in the realm of faith, and he's saying, faith, that which he is exhorting these people to exercise, he says, in the final analysis, it is all of him. Faith starts with God, and faith ends with God. It's Jesus who is the author of the finisher. If we're going to run the race by faith, we have to be fixed on Jesus because he's the source of our faith and the sustainer and perfecter of our faith. Remember, it says all things are of him and through him and unto him. Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in you is going to complete it. The author, the starter, as it were, and the finisher are one and the same person, our Lord Jesus. And that, I think, is what he's saying. Everything, everything in the realm of faith is really about Jesus. And it's that security that we have in his work that enables us to endure and persevere and cling to him. Now, he talks about the price that Jesus paid for our perseverance. He endured the cross, despising its shame... That's kind of an interesting expression, isn't it? He looks with disdain upon the shame of the cross. I'm going to come back to that in the next verse because I think this is huge. When, when, uh, when we've been reading recently about an honor-based society and, and about the power of shame, 
Jesus lived in that culture. Jesus lived in the culture where it's about honor and where shame is an anathema. And what this author says is, he did not let the shame that would be associated with that cross keep him from enduring uh, what it brought. He despised its shame, and he says he did it for the joy that was set before him. He saw something beyond the shame. He saw the goal, and he saw this as that which one had to do. It's like Moses, who was willing to suffer with the people of God and identify with them and forsake the pleasures of Egypt for a season for that which ultimately was lasting and enduring. I don't know specifically what the joy set before him refers to. It may well be a general term that includes uh, obedience to the Father. There's joy in that. Bringing glory to the Father. There's joy in that. That's our Lord's mission. Saving sinners. That's joy for our Lord. Uh, being exalted to the right hand of the Father. Certainly, that's something that would bring great joy as well. But it is that joy which enables him to uh, endure the shame. And now, and, and, and that's where I see the, the contrast. He endures the cross, but now he's enthroned in glory. He did. He went through the most unimaginable shame that we could ever conceive of. And yet now he sits enthroned in glory at the Father's right hand. Boy, is that a turnover of events? That's what he's saying. He gives up short-term pleasure for long-term pleasure. He endures pain now for pleasure then. It's either that or enjoying pleasure now without God and pain later. You have to make a choice. So he sits enthroned in glory with the Father. Second command is in chapter 12 and verse 3. Think of him. That's an imperative Considering as we go about our day, as we go about our work, as we go about our week, thinking about Jesus is not an option. It's a command. We are to keep him at the front of our thinking. And he says, think of him who endured such opposition by sinners. The word there is rebellion. Talks about the shame that he's endured. Now you're looking at, and and think about that scene on the cross where here he is hanging on the cross and men are walking by and saying, if you are the son of God, come on down off of there. Save yourself. You saved others, save yourself. I got to tell you, that, for for the son of God, (laughs) that would be something to endure, especially knowing what he could have done. He could have come off that cross and given them grief. And he says he did this so that we might not grow weary and give up. In other words, he did it for us. He endured so that we could endure. He has blazed the trail ahead of us, I think is, is what he's saying. Now, note what our, our, our Lord has endured. There is no mention of pain. I say, sorry, Mel, I think you all know Mel Gibson. But the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ... It is a powerful movie, but it focuses on something the Bible never does. It is not the physical pain of our Lord Jesus that is the greatest agony. When he's in the garden and when he's on the cross, it's the agony of the separation from the Father. It's the agony of one who is perfect and pure, now bearing the putrid sins of men. And 
I think, uh, from verse 2. I want to come back to that now. It's bearing shame. Bearing shame. In an honor-based culture, there is nothing more hellish than shame. But what I'm trying to get at is, when we think about our Lord, and, and especially as we come to the Lord's Supper, th- there is a tendency for us to dwell on his physical pain. There is a tendency to do that. And all I'm saying is, he did suffer great physical pain. But what the author of the, uh, to the Hebrews wants us to dwell on is not the physical pain. He wants us to dwell on what it meant for the God-man to endure the rebellion of the very people he created who are speaking against him. For him who has uh, has enjoyed the glory and the splendor of heaven to now be heaped on with the ultimate shame of being sin. That's what our Lord has done. And it seems to me what he's saying when he gets down further in the chapter and he says, you know, you haven't even suffered to the point of death. And I think he's clearly saying, you surely have not suffered to the point Jesus did. If Jesus has endured shame, then should we not endure shame? And if he did that because of the joy of the cross, then is our focus not to be on Christ and the joy of the cross, that joy that comes from identifying with him? I think that's exactly what he's saying. If he endured the uh, rebellion of sinners, people speaking against him, is it any surprise if we as Christians will experience that same thing? And we, like he, should endure it. Okay, conclusion. We are being watched. I I think that it's so important for Christians because oftentimes in the midst of our suffering, we just think we're alone, don't we? We think we're alone. And there's a sense when you look at these people who walk by faith, there is a sense in which sometimes they seem to stand pretty much alone. But we need to be aware that when we run the Christian race, we've got a huge coliseum of people who have run before us, who are cheering us on, I think. And we've got our Lord Jesus, and we have the church of which we have become a part, Hebrews chapter 10, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. We run with others who are there to cheer us on in our our walk. Oh, we're not, uh, we are being watched. Matthew 6 Verse 6, we're being watched by God. God, who sees what we do in secret, will reward us. I mean, we know that, hypothetically. But don't you sometimes feel more secure when you don't think there's a camera or or whatever around and you just sort of feel safer? I mean, the intersections that have the cameras that go off when you run a red light, you know, you feel you're being watched, you sort of tighten up a little bit. Folks, you are being watched, and it isn't by Big Brother. It's by God. He's watching and he rewards. And then we're watched by angels. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10. Because of the angels, he says, women ought to dress in this way. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, he talks as well about angels who are stooping to look into the things that are going on. Angels are watching. And, of course, from Hebrews chapter 12, these saints... I think, are somehow involved in this thing. We've got lots of witnesses. <laughs> We've got lots of people looking on. They're cheering us on in our race, and we ought to stay with the race because of that. We're not alone. Uh, it's a relay, not 
a, a solo marathon, and therefore we need to keep playing our part well. See, there is sufficiency. The sufficiency and the sovereignty of our Lord is really the basis for all that we're exhorted to do. Is there human responsibility? Is there effort that is to be put forth? Are Christians to work hard at living their Christian life? Absolutely. But they are to do so because we have been given faith. He is the sustainer of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. The reason we run the race with endurance is because Christ has run it before us. He has won the race for us, and this is what he's given us to do, but he's enabled us to do what he calls us to do as he tells us to run that race. The race and the rewards are still before us. We need to look beyond the present and look to the future. I've got a point that I think I left off of that. Oh, I put it on there. Sorry. Spiritual liposuction. I couldn't resist. Isn't our economy... Isn't that God's liposuction? Isn't God, in a way, by means of our economy, saying, you know what, you just got too much stuff, too many things. And so he just, just gives us the old liposuction, and away they go. And, and so, you know, God's going to help us lose weight, folks. God is going to help us lose weight. Some of that stuff we weren't eager to lose, but it's going away anyway. God is interested in making us those who run well and he'll do what it takes to bring us to that point. Oh, I wanted to say this too. Not only is there an individual uh, uh, individual aspect of, of losing weight and dealing with besetting sins, there's a corporate aspect. And one of the things as we were talking on Friday, uh, that came up. And I think it's really true. We as a group of elders and we as a, group, as, as a church need to be saying, are there things corporately for us? Are there things corporately that are fat in some way? Programs, uh, budget matters, whatever it is. Are there things that are fat that are really getting in the way of the task God has given us to do? We need to be looking at that. All of us need to be looking at that and saying, it isn't just individual. We're all in this race and we need to set aside things that just don't need to be there or are flat out wrong to be there. There's that corporate element. Uh, there may be there may be sins, uh, or let's put it differently. There may be a sin that really typifies our kind of church. It could be pride. We've got it right. Others got it wrong. It could be pride in the sense of we know and they don't. There could be all kinds of things that we may corporately fall into that we need to ask ourselves, is there something that needs to be corrected here? And finally, the importance of being Christ-centered. That's what, that's what our worship time is about every week. It's all about Christ. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you see the church is already starting to be divided, and it's basically being divided because there are certain individuals who are gaining allegiance and people's attention and they're following rather than Christ. Paul says, I preach Christ we preach Christ, and we preach Christ crucified. Jesus Christ is the center of the bullseye. That's where we need to have our focus. That's where we need to have our emphasis, and that's why every week we come back and we say, it's about Jesus. It is about Jesus. What he did, 
is to become the author of our faith. He is the finisher of our faith. It's all in what he has done. And when we come to this table and we, we break that bread, let's not just talk about the fact that, that, that he suffered. He did. But what did he suffer? He suffered shame, the shame of taking on our sin. He suffered the alienation of the Father. Those are far greater things than mere physical pain. So let's remain Christ-centered. I was thinking about, as I was just thinking my way through this message, I was thinking about being at Moody Bible Institute once and sitting in their, in their chapel. And it was a very interesting thing because there in, in, in that particular institution, a number of people have gone out as martyrs for the faith. And, and when you sit in that, 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 uh, that auditorium and you look out, literally those who are in the know there could say, so-and-so sat right here and he died for his faith. He went out. So-and-so sat in that seat right over there and they died for their faith. Martyrs. But the thing that struck me is when I read Hebrews chapter 12, it's not an empty seat. It's not an empty seat. It's not as though those people left here and they died for their faith and now they're gone. Folks, if I read Hebrews 12, right? They may be in the upper level, whatever. They may be in the upper level, but they're here. They're here with us. And they're still engaged with us in the sense that we are in this race together. And they cheer us on. And most of all, it is our Lord who has gone before us, and it is about him. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. What a wonderful truth that is. Help us to, to look only to him. Help us to look away from those other things that only distract us. Help us to look to him uh, for our salvation. Help us to look to him to sustain us in difficult days. Help, help us look to him to give us the faith and the perseverance to endure. If there's anyone here who's never personally trusted in the Lord Jesus, may they understand it is not what we do, it is what he has done. Therefore, we ask that they would come to trust in Jesus for salvation. Help us to run the race well. Help us to see those things in our lives that are weights that we need to lose. Help us to see that besetting sin that may characterize us and keep us from achieving what you have to accomplish in our lives. Help us collectively as a church to do the same. We ask for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.